morning, everybody. Good to see you all. We are marching on ahead in our uh, walk through Genesis. We are really close to the end of Genesis now. Genesis only has 50 chapters, and we're in chapter 45 today. Uh, we're at the end of this unit that started in chapter 42 of the testing of Joseph's brothers. Uh, last week, we left off at a cliffhanger when Benjamin's been framed for stealing the silver cup. Judah implores Joseph to take him in his stead and just crying out. He's coming out to an end of himself and understands that he is not guilty of this, um, that Benjamin isn't guilty of this, but he doesn't want Benjamin to suffer. He doesn't want his father to suffer. So will he take him in his stead? End of chapter. And then we pick up right there from that this week. And what is Joseph going to do? How is he going to respond? Is he going to spare Benjamin for the sake of Judah? Um, dramatic pause, not intended. Um, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen? And it's actually this big climactic moment here for the family when all is finally revealed. Um, strangely, it reminded me of a, a movie I'd watched as a child, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, in case you haven't seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, it's been out for 50 years. You should have seen it by now. Um, <laughs> premise of the story of Willy Wonka, he's this enigmatic character. Nobody knows really a whole lot about him, um, but he's closed his factory for a really long time, and suddenly he's reopening it, and chocolate's going out to the world, and he's inviting five people to come and see. And so that's so the whole thing with the golden ticket. I've got a golden ticket. Um, <laughs> that was free. That's the only one I'm going to do. Um, so he invites these five people out. It ends up being five children. They get these tickets. They're able to bring a family member. And they go through the factory. And they go through a series of tests. They don't know they're being tested. But as the watcher, we can tell what Willy Wonka is doing. He's testing the character of these children. Will they prove to be of good character. And it culminates as all the children except for Charlie have been weeded out to one way or another. And it's left at the end where um, Willy Wonka and Charlie and his uh, grandpa Joe are going back to Willy Wonka's office. And we hit this very crucial scene. It's the final test when uh, Grandpa Joe says to Willy Wonka, so, where, so now when does he get the, when does he get the chocolate? Because they were promised a lifetime's supply of chocolate after the factory. And he goes, oh no, that you don't get the chocolate. Because during part of the course, they had drinking some fizzy lifting drink and they had touched the ceiling and got smudged and they signed a contract at the very beginning that if they did any of that, they forfeit everything. He says, you broke the contract, you get nothing, you lose. Good day, sir in classic Gene Wilder fashion. So Grandpa Joe's furious. is, how could you do this to a little boy? Just build up his hopes and dreams and promise in the world and then just take it away from him, you monster. And he turns to Charlie and he says, if, if um, oh, I'm blanking on his name. What? Slugworth, thank you. If Slugworth <laughs> wants a gobstopper, we'll give him a gobstopper. So at the very beginning of the movie, this other character who calls himself Slugworth says, if you go inside the factory and you steal a gobstopper for me, I will give you tons and tons of money because Charlie is exceedingly poor. So it's an easy way out of their very difficult situation. And so when Willy Wonka gave all the kids a gobstopper, he asked, you must promise me 
solemnly swear that you will only use this for you. This is my special gift for you, but you won't give it to anyone else. And they all swear by this. So this is the final test of character. Will you take the easy way out and sacrifice your integrity when I have treated you so illy, when you've been unjustly cast aside? How will you respond? So Charlie's there, and Grandpa Joe's trying to lead him out the door. And Charlie walks over to Willy Wonka, and he sets the gum stopper on his desk. And he says, goodbye, Mr. Wonka, and he walks away. And so you have this slow panning scene of Willy Wonka grabbing the gobstopper, And he turns, and he says, Charlie, my boy, you've won! And that's the moment we get today, this moment where it's finally all revealed that it's been a test. I needed to see if you were true. I needed to see your character for myself. This is what Joseph has done through this time, through these series of extremely difficult tests for this family, not revealing his true motives of what he's doing and why, allowing them to fall through this to see, is their character true? This is the moment we saw last week with Judah who has come to the end of himself. He knows he is guilty, but not of this crime. He has been able to walk free for the last 22 years for a heinous crime that he has committed, living with it day after day after day, and he knows that his family is being punished for this crime, but Benjamin is innocent. And there's an easy way out. It's an easy way out for him and his brothers and his family, for them to just go and let Benjamin take the fall for all of this, even though he knows he's not guilty. He says, take me. Chapter 45, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. <laughs> Have you ever seen someone in hysterics or been close, maybe a friend or a family member? It's uncomfortable. It's difficult to be around. I've experienced this a lot. I have four children. Hysterics is like a weekly thing. But with children, you get it to a degree. But when it's an adult, you don't know what to do. Do I pat your back? Do I give you space? I mean, do I get you a cookie? What do I do here? Now, to add into this, this is the, the leader of the land. He's been enigmatic this entire time. He's been this mystery character. He's speaking to them in Egyptian through a translator. He's been harsh. He holds their life in his hands, and he starts sobbing uncontrollably. His wails are so loud, everyone in the household hears it. He's cast everyone out. He's claiming to be their long-lost dead brother. He's asking about his father. And suddenly he's even speaking their language, which he's never done before. These guys are terrified. What do I do? They're dismayed. It's kind of like seeing a T-Rex. If we don't move, maybe he'll go away. What's happening here? It's so much information all at once. I mean, who goes, hey, I'm your long lost dead brother. And you go, I knew it. It's a shock. Nobody knows what to do, so they just do nothing. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. 
And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all of his house and rule over all the land of Egypt. We're in the book of beginnings. We're in the book of Genesis where we see every major theme of scripture begin. The red thread here is the remnant that from time to time there will be a striking of the earth and either people will be scattered or they will be destroyed. But God will always preserve a righteous remnant. And we see it accounted over and over and over again through Scripture. We've actually seen it with Noah. We've seen it with the Tower of Babel. We've seen it now with Joseph. We will see it again with Assyria and Babylon towards Israel and Judah. And we will see it finally in the last days as revealed to us through the book of Revelation and alluded to by Christ when he was here that this pattern repeats itself, that there will be a striking of the land. There will be a striking of the people and a remnant will be preserved. And of Isaiah 10, it says, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. That right there, that last line is a really difficult thing for most people to hold in tandem together. Destruction being righteous. I've had many a conversation with people about how God operated throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Most people don't have a hard time with God sending a plague or God sending an earthquake or a storm or some natural, natural disaster to punish people. Almost nobody has a real difficult issue with that. What they have most issue with is when God sends people to deal with people. And every time this happens, it's as punishment for their sins. And the difficulty comes in this, but you're using sinners to punish sinners. And that's true. But what do we do? Do we allow something to remain evil on the land? Because time and time again, whenever this striking happens, evil has spread rampant upon the land and it must be dealt with in some way. And God has chosen to use people from time to time. He's chosen to use plagues from time to time. He's chosen to use other means from time to time. But it's God who gets to choose. And that's one of the most difficult things we have to walk through, is that God is the one who gets to choose. But there will be a punishment. There will be a striking. And it's not something that he does mildly. It's not something that he's taking lightly. All of these people have been given thousands of years to change their ways. When you look at time and time again, it's never, it's never short. 
They're always called back into repentance over and over and over again. And although we serve a patient, loving, and kind God, even His patience runs out. And because He is also just, He will punish the guilty. Out of Jeremiah 23, Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And the days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There will be a perfect savior to come and end this cycle who will come and redeem the land and reign in righteousness. And this is alluded to again and again and again, as I've pointed out here in Ezekiel and Micah and Zephaniah and Zechariah. It's too many passages to read all right now, but I would encourage you to go and see them for yourselves. But there's a final cycle. It's where we are headed. It's where some believe we're in right now. I can't say for certain because God says no man knows for certain. But this is what Jesus himself said of the times to come. Matthew 24, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So none of us know when that day is, but the things seem to point closer and closer day by day of Jesus' return. And that reality should give all of us a sense of urgency, a sense of this reality that not everybody is in the protective saving arms of the Father. There are some that are still outside of his house. There are some that still need to be brought in. And so we are told to look at life with a sense of urgency. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Every day matters. Every day counts. It might be any day. It's hard to walk through when every day seems like the same day. But Jesus said, it's going to be like every day. And then suddenly, like lightning across the sky, everyone will know I'm here. There will be no more denying, and it will be too late. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. Therefore, I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have 
do not come to poverty. Something I noticed as I looked at these different strikings that happen throughout Scripture. They're not singular events where something gets stricken and we go, wow, that was bad. Let's, let's pick up the pieces and let's walk through. No, they're years upon years upon years of struggle. This current striking is seven years straight of no abundance of food. Most people have a reserve of some sort. Some it's months, some it's years. Most people don't have seven years of food stored up. There's a certain measure of despondency there that you must go where the salvation is. And what we try to do in our own humanly way will not suffice. We must bring people back into the love and care of the Lord so that when it happens, they may endure. Because to try to do it on our own, it will be so bad that we will fail without God. That is the thrust of Revelation when we talk about the seven bowls of wrath being poured out upon the earth. It's not one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Wow, that was bad. No, it's years of pain and sorrow and suffering where they cry out to the mountains, fall down upon us. They need God. They need to be there now. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, and that is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them after that, and him and his brothers talked with him. They're called to be his witnesses, to tell of all the good things they've seen. They've been told, hurry. And I wonder at this conversation, what a conversation that must have been afterwards. The questions they might have had, the concerns, the doubts, the fears, what might have been said. They've got a long journey ahead of them. I imagine Joseph is going to have to do a lot of encouraging, a lot of perhaps, that's a difficult word, trying to calm their fears, assuaging, assuaging, however you say it, you know what I mean. They've got a long journey. I've got a map. I've got a pointer. Any moment the map. There we go. They're 220 miles away from home. They're somewhere in this region. They got to get back all the way to Hebron. This purple blob is the land of Goshen where they're going to settle. 220 miles away. They're going to be on foot with donkeys and wagons. Donkeys and wagons go about 10 to 20 miles per day. Round trip at the fastest, this is 25 days. At the slowest, between 50 and 60 days. That's a lot of time to think when you're on the road. People think eight hours in the car is long, 50 days, a lot of time to doubt, a lot of time to have concerns, a lot of time to question, a lot of time to get back in your own head, because this is a big shocking moment right now. This is big right now, but Joseph needs them to remain steadfast under this trial, because many of them are going to think, they're even going to think until their father's dying day. What if when we bring dad back, Joseph executes us afterwards? 
They think that till his dying day. It's a real fear they have that he's just, they're just under the protection of the fact that their father is alive. I wonder what Joseph might have said. It's not recorded in scripture, but as I've considered, I've wondered if it's similar, similar to Psalm 34 when it says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. It feels like that fairy tale ending. You've seen that when the kids' movies, when it's all bad and it seems like it's all in despair, and then all of a sudden the best thing imaginable happens, and there's a wedding, and then, then they go back, and they're in the carriage, and they're waving into the sunset, and happily ever after. And it feels that way. This is as good as it could possibly be. We're not going to die. We're going to live. We're going to get all our things. We're going to be taken care of for the rest of our lives. This is great. Happily ever after. But it's not to last. Some things that begin well don't end well. If we go back 30 chapters, Genesis 15, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is the land. Jump ahead six chapters, Exodus 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly 
made them work as slaves. All out of fear of what might be. Not something the Israelites did. Not something that was rumored. Not something that was told to them by another king. Something that might be and the fear that arose from it. And we as a people today are guilty of it. As a nation, we've done this. It was really bad back in World War II when Japan entered the war. Thousands and thousands of Japanese Americans were taken from their homes and all of their liberties stripped from them and they were put into internment camps until the war ended. Out of fear of what might be. Citizens of this nation, neighbors, friends, family members, out of fear they were locked away. We didn't learn the lesson then. This has happened in the last few years. When COVID broke out between 2019 and 2020, the amount of Asian American hate crimes went up by 77%. Because COVID came from across the sea, so these people must somehow be to blame. In 2020 to 2021, there were reported 9,000 hate crimes. Those are the ones that are reported, let alone the ones that were kept quiet out of fear of future retributions. The lesson hasn't been learned. People respond out of fear, and we must never, ever be a part of that. And we must stand against that. We must not respond in kind, and we will stand up for the life of our neighbor. Yes. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them weapon wagons. <laughs> According to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. I've always pondered that statement. It doesn't go into it in any detail. Do not quarrel along the way. Now, when you look at that word quarrel, it can mean that basic idea of fighting with each other. But the word can also mean tremble, as in fear. There's a double meaning here to this. First of all, don't play the blame game with one another because they have already been apt to do this. A couple chapters ago, we saw oldest brother Reuben, I told you so to all of his brothers. We shouldn't have done that. You brought this on our heads. And he's saying, don't, don't do that. We can't be having any of this anymore. Your brothers, this is spoken to us out of Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. I've forgiven you all of this. Let the past go. But then there comes the trembling. Then there comes the questioning. Then there comes the doubting of Joseph. If we bring dad back, is it off with our head? He's telling them, don't tremble along the way. Believe me to be true, which would be hard because he's been deceiving them. Believe me to be true. That's Psalm 103. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all of Egypt. That had to have been an awkward conversation. <laughs> and his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. That word numb essentially means his heart stopped. He had a heart attack. Such a shock to his system, what they're telling him. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, enough. Joseph, my son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What can we learn from all of this? This whole unit is a reflection of our walk with God. It's a reflection of humanity's struggle and realization because we all begin in darkness. We all begin not understanding. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every human being is born sitting on their throne. And we as parents don't do a good job of removing that until they're a couple years old and they're already set in it. But as a baby, we coo and we ah and we all stare at them. And when they burp, we go, you're amazing. Look how smart you are. <laughs> no matter what they do. And then suddenly they get a couple years old and they hear this for the first time. No. Mm-mm, peasant. Ever have a one-year-old or a two-year-old? You know the look. <laughs> All little tiny emperors and empresses with their scepters. <laughs> and then there's this internal struggle. Wait a second. I'm in charge here. When I cry, you come. That's the deal. And we all have to learn a very critical lesson in life that although you sit on this throne, everyone else is trying to sit on their throne too. And then it's me against you. Myself at the expense of all others. We learn very quickly that word, mine. 
I've never had to teach a child that word, but they've all got it. <laughs> but we all have to learn something. And it will be revealed eventually. In the book of Job, it speaks to it. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. The reality that God is real and you're sitting on God's throne. This is a reality all of us will eventually face. We will struggle with each other for a while, but then we will face the ultimate rally. God is here and you're on his throne. And how tight are you going to hold on to that seat? Out of Philippians 2, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has sent his servant and he is the savior of the world and he has come. And there's no denying it. Whether we like it or not, the evidence stands clear in front of us. Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. We will all be faced with the choice when it is all revealed to us. Will we continue to suppress the truth because we preferred it or accept the reality of who God is? And some will still choose to deny Continuing out of Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came, became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And isn't that the day we live in today where we've exchanged the truth for a lie because the lie is sweet and what's already wants and it lets me continue to sit on this comfy throne that proclaims me as the highest of all things. This is the choice the brothers have to make. Will they exchange the truth they now know 
for the lie they've been continuing to live in. The lie was comfortable. The lie left them in charge still. The lie let them go their own way. Now will they subject themselves to the truth and the Savior and his good pleasure. Because it is the only true way to salvation. Holding on to the lie will only result in death. That's what the brothers and the family faces if they hold on to the lie. They will all perish in starvation. None of them will have the true bread of life that's presented to all of us if we choose to believe, if we choose to acknowledge the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ as Lord. 1 Timothy 6 says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 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 Would you stand with us?